Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. Uh, this is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA, was elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois, and also co-hosts this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, uh, the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate trial. Uh, I've also served as general counsel of the Army in the Carter administration and uh, was the deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois, which might be relevant, but Maybe more relevant today is the fact that I'm a graduate of the University of Illinois undergrad in journalism, and so very, very proud to be here today. Yeah, so today we come to you live via Zoom for a special episode of Intergenerational Politics with um, two very special guests. We have Vikram Amar, Dean of the University of Illinois Law School in Urbana-Champaign, as well as Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of UC Berkeley Law School. Um, today we have a packed uh, discussion ahead of us. We'll be talking about important cases from the current, uh, Supreme Court term, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation to the court, what cases you should look forward to uh, during the rest of the term, and what, if anything, should be done about what many may perceive as stolen seats on the Supreme Court as a result of the Senate refusing to confirm President Obama's nominee eight months before the 2016 election, and then confirming Justice Amy Coney Barrett days before voting ended in 2020. So um, before we get started with this special episode, Jill and I just want to say a special thank you to Dean Vikram Amar um, and the University of Illinois Law School for hosting us today. We're really excited to be here. And I want to say a special hello to one of your professors, Eric Freifogel, who worked for me in the Pentagon. Uh, So hi, Eric. And although I think that neither of our guests needs any introduction to this audience, um, I just feel like I should do that right now. Of course, you know that uh, Vikram Amar has been the dean of the University of Illinois Law School since 2015. He had been a professor of law for many years at a, a number of law schools, including in the University of California system, where Victor will be a student um, in January. And Dean Amar is also one of the most eminent and frequently cited authorities in constitutional law, federal courts, and civil procedure, having produced several books and over 60 articles in leading law reviews. So thank you for being here. And Dean Erwin Chemerinsky has been the Dean of Berkeley Law since July of 2017. Prior to that, he taught at Duke University, USC Law School, and UCLA, uh, again, where Victor will be next quarter. Um, He's also been the author of 11 books, including leading casebooks and treatises about constitutional law. Uh, I was on a panel with him for a group of um, writers from Hollywood. And as I listened to his views on rebalancing the Supreme Court by adding two more justices, I knew that I wanted to talk to him more about the argument he had made because I found it very persuasive. So thank you very much for being here. And we will definitely talk about that subject. Thank Thank you, you. Dean Chermarinsky. Delighted to be with you. So let me start by asking you about that very question, uh, which is, you argued that two seats should be added to the Supreme Court. And I don't want to give your argument, but it was um, basically to balance the denial of a hearing for Merrick Garland and then rushing to confirm Justice Barrett. So could you just maybe repeat what your argument was? I'm assuming you still feel the same way. Yes, I can repeat the argument in terms of feeling the same way. It's complicated because it depends entirely on who controls the Senate come the new term. Um, What we've seen over the last several years is Republican court packing. What went on with regard to the nomination of Chief Judge Merrick Garland was unprecedented in American history. Justice Anton Scalia died in February of 2016. President Barack Obama nominated Chief Judge Garland in March of 2016. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, no hearings, no vote. In an election year, it should be the people who decide who's going to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Prominent Republican senators like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham said, in an election year, a president should not fill the vacancy. 
wait and see who wins the election, and that person should do so. On Friday, September the 18th, Justice Ginsburg passed away. Within, I think, an hour of her death being announced, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, we're going to fill this seat before the election. A week later, President Obama, uh, President Trump nominated very conservative judge Amy Coney Barrett. On October 26th, she was confirmed by the Senate and sworn in. Uh, the hypocrisy, even when we are used to a certain amount of hypocrisy in politics, was just stunning. Um, ultimately, I think Democrats have the, a choice. Do they accept that it's going to be a very conservative Supreme Court for a decade more to come? Or do they take action to try to balance the Supreme Court? Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. If she remains on the court until she's 87, the age which Justice Ginsburg died, she'll be a Supreme Court justice either 2059. Neil Gorsuch is just 53, Brett Kavanaugh is 55, John Roberts is 65, Sam Alito is 70, Clarence Thomas is 72. The best predictor of a long lifespan is being confirmed for a seat on the court. John Paul Stevens didn't retire until he was 90. I don't think the Democrats can accept this court for another decade or two. So that's why I argue that they should increase the size of the Supreme Court. But that would take Democrats controlling both House of Congress and the White House. And at best, it's uncertain whether Democrats will control the Senate after the two Georgia special elections. Exactly. And I think the part of your argument that really was very persuasive to me was, yes, there is a consequence of doing this, which is that if a Republican president and a Republican Senate takes control, they can rebalance it in their favor. And then you end up with a really big court. But you said the consequence of doing nothing is that for the next 30, 40 years, you will have an unbalanced court with seats that were stolen. And that was what really persuaded me is that doing nothing left in place something that I considered unjust. But let me turn it over to Victor to talk about some of the cases that are pending right now. For sure, yeah. So let's talk about some of the cases that have been argued so far this term. Um, first on our list is California versus Texas, which is also known as the Affordable Care Act case, um, which was argued a week after the election and is uh, one of the reasons for rushing Justice Amy Coney Barrett's no um, nomination and the belief that she would rule as President Trump wanted. Um, this case is the second time that the constitutionality of the individual mandate, which um, essentially is the provision of the ACA that originally required all Americans to buy health insurance or pay a penalty, um, was called into question. Uh, this time, the challenge comes after Congress reduced the penalty for not purchasing health insurance from $695 to $0 in 2017. So the briefs and the oral argument in this current case focus on whether the individual mandate is severable from the ACA. If it's severable, that means that even if the individual mandate is unconstitutional, the rest of the law has to stand. If not, the entire law would have to go. And so because of that latter scenario of whether um, the ind individual mandate is inseverable um, and would have to go and the affordable character would have to go, a lot of people felt anxious about the possible implications of the court decision. So um, I want to turn this to Dean Amar first. So do you think the court, you know, having listened to the arguments, do you think the court will rule that the individual mandate is severable from the rest of the law? Um, what do you think is the fate of the ACA? So I'll, I'll take that up in a moment, but let me, let me first uh, uh, share a few thoughts in reaction to, to Irwin's discussion of, of, uh, of, kind of where, how the court should be structured. Um, we, we share some of the same frustrations, but I think he and I disagree on this important question. So I wanna make sure people understand kind of the other point of view here. Um, I was very adamant in suggesting that the Senate should give a hearing to Merrick Garland. I thought he was a very good nominee. I thought he would have been a very good justice. Um, but I will say um, that I don't find things quite as hypocritical as Irwin does. If you go back and look at the record, um, uh, Senate Leader McConnell would talk about the importance of the American people speaking in the election, but he also frequently mentioned that we have a Senate of one party and a president of the other party, and that the Republicans had won the Senate. And the Constitution does require both the Senate and the president to agree before a seat is filled. If President Obama had nominated um, a Federalist Society justice, I guarantee you the Republicans in the Senate would have confirmed that person. Similarly, if, um, if Hillary Clinton had won election uh, in 2016 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, uh, she would have filled the seat if the Democrats controlled the Senate. 
So I do think it's very different when the, the Senate and the president are opposing parties. Uh, and that was frequently mentioned even by McConnell at, at the time. Now, the problem I see with a court packing uh, in terms of adding seats to the court, which is what I really think about when I think of court packing, I think the, the refusal to confirm Garland and the, and the, the, the uh, 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 confirmation of Tony Barrett, I don't think of that as court packing. I think of that as just very aggressive, but constitutionally permissible hardball, for which there should be consequences in some respects, I agree. But I, if, you, if you start increasing the size of the court when you have the president and the Senate, there's no stopping point for that. Tit for tat, yeah, you rebalance it today when you have the White House and the Senate, and then in 2024, if, the, if, if Trump wins again, or, or a Republican wins, and they win the, the, the Senate, uh, then you, the court gets ever larger. I think a better way to go, and unfortunately, the fact that the Dems aren't gonna likely control the Senate, although who knows what's gonna happen in Georgia, probably dooms this as well. I think a better way to go would be to have every president be able to pick two justices during a four-year term, and justices rotate off the Supreme Court after 18 years. They're still full-fledged Article III um, judges, so there's no constitutional amendment required. Um, that would make the court's membership track presidential elections much more tightly, reduce the incentive that Irwin properly identifies as a problematic one to pick people in their 40s or early 50s because of longevity. If you're only going to serve 18 years, it doesn't matter how old you are, and would also eliminate the, uh, the desire of justices to time their retirement based on who's in the White House. Um, Justice Ginsburg probably, had she known that President Trump was gonna win in 2016, would have given her seat in 2014 to Barack Obama, but, but that's the game that everyone is playing and it's a, it's a bad game to, to, to encourage people to play. So that's the direction in which I would like to see court reform. Okay, turning to the ACA. I, find, I, I wrote a series of essays on, on justia.com that people can look at if they want to. I find this a challenge to Obamacare quite preposterous, I'll tell you that. I found the 2012 challenge outrageous. This one I find even more preposterous. There's actually three er, uh, uh, separate grounds on which the challenge should fail. One, the plaintiffs don't have standing under conventional standing principles. Two, even if they have standing, the mandate itself is not unconstitutional. When we talk about the mandate, we're talking about the word shall. Congress said each individual shall procure health insurance. In 2012, John Roberts, writing for the court, said shall doesn't mean must as a legal matter. They're not legally obligated. Shall means simply Congress is encouraging you to do it if you want to avoid paying extra taxes. Now, the fact that everybody is freed of those extra taxes doesn't change the meaning of shall. Indeed, even in 2012, there were not, not everybody was subject to paying taxes. And yet, as to those persons that the court didn't say this is an impermissible command, the word shall, shall simply meant Congress is encouraging you to do it. The, the, the meaning of that statutory term hasn't changed. And, and when, when the court interprets the word of a statute and then Congress doesn't alter that word um, in subsequent legislation, that's very strong precedent because Congress could fix any misinterpretation and it hasn't. And then third, if, if and when we get there, and we should never get there, even if you found the word shall to be constitutionally problematic because it was too pushy on Congress's part, there is just no credible argument that the rest of Obamacare should fail. In 2017, everyone knew um, uh, that the rest of Obamacare was still around and yet they reduced the tax to zero and left Obamacare intact that's, that's pretty powerful evidence of, of what was going on. And I'll illustrate all of that with one final hypothetical. In 2010, when Congress passed Obamacare, if they said the tax penalty that you have to pay if you don't get insurance shall phase out over the next seven years and reach a point of zero in 2017, um, no one in the world would have thought that's unconstitutional. John Roberts wouldn't have struck down Obamacare in the, in the Sebelius case in 2012. Basically, if Congress could have done it in 2010, uh, why can't it do it in 2017 after it sees how Obamacare is up and operating? So I find this case quite preposterous. I don't think there are going to be more than two, maybe three justices who embrace it. I think there's going to be six or seven or more justices who, for one or more of the three reasons I identified, will deflect this. And if there's one person, I think, in the country who's sick of these Obamacare challenges, it's probably John Roberts. Maybe even more than Erwin Samaransky and me. <laughs> 
So actually, you've mentioned one of the issues that I was going to ask uh, Erwin about, which is standing. Uh, but let me first give him a chance if he would like to answer your answer about his argument um, about what he's calling court balancing and you're calling court packing. Sure. Um, Vic and I agree on much, but we disagree on this. First, in terms of the possibility that the Republicans would then increase the size of the Supreme Court and it could go on, yes, that's certainly possible. But to me, the alternative is accepting not just a conservative court, but a very conservative court, and not just for a short time, but a very long time. I also think that your proposal would require a constitutional amendment. I think that a Supreme Court justice gets to function as a Supreme Court justice for life once confirmed, can't be rotated off. You're a tenured professor, I'm a tenured professor. The university couldn't say to us, hey, look, we're gonna give you your salary, but we're gonna take away all of your responsibilities, all of your teaching, all of your research and the like, but you keep your title and your salary. I think that would be a violation of tenure, and I think it violates Article Three. So I think your alternative would require a constitutional amendment. Let me let me jump in on that narrow point because ten, if you want to invoke the tenure example, in most universities, tenure exists at the university, not the school. So if if you know if Berkeley wanted to make keep you as a tenured professor but move you from the law school to political science and keep your salary the same, it actually could, and that's what we're talking about. You're a senior justice who still sits on on federal cases just not on that particular court. I think that's inconsistent with the language of Article 3 that says that the Supreme Court justice has his or her position assuming good behavior for life. No, 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 it doesn't. It, 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 says all judges. it doesn't say Supreme Court justices. Look at Article 3. It doesn't say that. But once you're confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, taking away your role as a Supreme Court justice, I think violates Article 3. Let me address the standing point. I agree with everything that Dick says with regard to the Affordable Care Act. Standing requires that somebody be personally injured in order to sue in federal court. The elimination of the penalty from the Affordable Care Act doesn't injure anybody. Nobody has to pay anything. Nobody in any way is hurt by it. And I think that it's interesting that at the oral argument a week ago, much of the questioning focused on how nobody is hurt by this. So I don't see either the individual plaintiffs or the state of Texas would have standing to sue. And I agree with Vic's analysis in terms of the constitutionality of the individual mandate, and especially with regard to severability. So let me ask a, a slightly expanded question about assuming that the Georgia election comes out so that there is control of the Senate by the Democrats and a control of the presidency. Um, I wonder if there would be any effort to redraft the legislation, either to fix the words or to resurrect the individual mandate. Um, do you think that's possible? And if so, do either of you have a recommendation for how the legislation could be drafted to avoid it being considered unconstitutional by this particular Supreme Court? Yes, Congress could simply put back in a penalty for not purchasing the individual mandate, and that would make this case moot. The only caution that I have is that everything about the Affordable Care Act has been so partisan from the beginning. Every Republican in Congress voted against it. Will Republican senators vote for this fix to save the Affordable Care Act, assuming that it needs to be saved? And if they don't, even if the Democrats win the two seats in Georgia, the Republicans could still filibuster, and I don't think there's gonna be the votes from the Democrats to eliminate the filibuster. And the only caution I have, even though I completely agree with Vic, as I look at the Supreme Court, I come to the same prediction he does, but maybe with more of a grain of salt. Four justices in 2012 would have struck down the entire Affordable Care Act. Amy Coney Barrett spoke at the time and wrote at the time that she would have declared the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. The only reason I don't completely embrace Vic's prediction is fear about what partisanship might mean here. Well, I, I, I do worry about partisanship in this and other settings, but the question in 2012 was a very different one than the one presented today. Back then, it was whether Congress had the power to impose a, a tax penalty on individuals who chose not to secure uh, uh, insurance. Today, the question is whether Congress has the power um, and the desire to maintain 
the other parts of the ACA as to which there's really no question about independent constitutional permissibility. Congress can, can create the exchanges, Congress can, uh, can subsidize the states, et cetera. So I, I do think that even some of the dissenters in, in 2012 will, will see the light now. Um, so, so, but you know, the partisanship um, as we've seen in this election, you know, it takes over uh, uh, legal analytics. There's no question. So I, I, that's why I never would bet on anything. But, but I am, I'm, I'm quite hopeful that the majority of the court will do the right thing here. But you want to jump agree. in over before I answer the rest of the question? I completely agree. I just want to add, you know, a conservative federal district court judge and two conservative federal court of appeals judges in this case would have found either this provision or the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Prior to the 2012 decision, every Republican appointee to a federal court, with two exceptions, voted to strike down the Affordable Care Act, and every Democratic appointee, with one exception, voted to uphold it. So I come to the same conclusion you do, but I always worry about how partisanship affects the perception of this particular statute. And that's a fair point, because this statute is kind of singularly politically salient. But I will say that the two judges on the Fifth Circuit, even they didn't strike down the whole act. They remanded it because even they perceived you had one rogue, quite honestly, not very um, sophisticated district court judge who went off on a lark. Um, uh, and so it's a really it's a, it's a data set of one here with regard to this particular challenge. Um, uh, on the question, Jill, that you asked about what Congress could do or should do if, if they win uh, the two seats in Georgia. Um, uh, I'm assuming you're saying if the court were to strike down the Affordable right. Care Act, what would the response be? Yes. Well, I think they could easily reenact the, uh, the tax penalty provision. Um, Irwin talked about the filibuster, but of course, a tax um, uh, 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 repeal, as in 2017, or a tax addition today, um, can avoid the filibuster by the reconciliation device. That's how the, they were able to do what they did in 2017 with a minimum of 50 plus votes. So they could, they could do that in reverse if they had all 50. Um, uh, uh, even if they didn't pick up uh, uh, Mitt Romney or uh, Murkowski or Collins, which they might. Um, uh, but, but to be honest with you, the fact that um, uh, the uh, other parts of Obamacare uh, can function without the, the tax penalty, it would be those parts of Obamacare that I think uh, would be most important to try to resurrect, uh, including the, the ban on pre-existing condition discrimination and the exchanges, et cetera. And there you might pick up more Republicans because those provisions aren't as uh, kind of controversial as the so-called mandate because that implicates individual choice and liberty. That's kind of how all of this got followed up in these, these uh, libertarian um, uh, instincts. Um, so, so I think that's the way to go. But to be honest with you, I think if, if, if unlikely as it seems right now, if the, if the Democrats win the two seats in Georgia, there are other statutes that I really would want Congress to focus on as much or more than Obamacare including uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, if they can get some Republicans to sign on to that, um, and, and, and a couple of other things uh, that, that have been gutted by the conservative court in, in recent years. Well, I would say that the lively discussion between the two of you shows that we asked the right first question, but um, I'd like to move on and ask Victor to talk about Fulton v. the city of Philadelphia. Sure, yeah. So the next case that we want to look at is Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, in which uh, the question of whether taxpayer-funded services from non-government organizations like food banks and foster care providers are able to deny people who may identify as LGBTQ+, Muslim, or Jewish because they violate the um, organization's religious beliefs. So in, um, in this particular case, the Catholic Social Services denied same-sex couples to become foster parents Philadelphia ceased its partnership with the Catholic Social Service because of this discrimination, but then the uh, Catholic Social Service argued that the law prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation violates their First Amendment rights um, on the grounds of freedom of religion. So for my peers, I mean, this is um, a pretty big issue, the LGBTQ plus one. Um, so Dean Chemerinsky, what are the consequences of this case if the, uh, if, if the Catholic Social Service does prevail? Um, could other non-government organizations be exempt and could the holding apply to issues beyond foster care? Yes, um, the city of Philadelphia says, we only wanna contract with those who agree that they won't discriminate based on race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. And Philadelphia says that that's our interest with regard to equality. Catholic Social Services says, but that violates our free exercise of religion because our religion doesn't recognize same-sex marriage and also violates our freedom of speech because we have to attest to this. There's always a tension 
between liberty and equality. Any law that prohibits discrimination restricts the freedom to discriminate. I thought one of the telling moments at oral argument was when Justice Barrett said, no one thinks that somebody could use their religion to discriminate on the basis of race. Well, the question is, should they be able to then use their religion to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation? My hope would be the Supreme Court would say no, that there's a compelling government interest in stopping discrimination, whether it's on the basis of race or sexual orientation. But we have a very conservative court now that's aggressively protecting free exercise of religion, that might even change the test that's used with regard to free exercise of religion. And that I think it's also a majority that is hostile to same-sex marriage. So I think here, if Catholic Social Services wins, it will open the door to other discrimination against gay and lesbian couples and might open the door to discrimination even more broadly than that. So that, that really does answer the question. Um, there was a case cited throughout the recent oral argument in Fulton um, and in other religious freedom cases, which was Employment Division versus Smith, which ruled that unemployment benefits could be denied to people who violated a state prohibition on peyote, despite it being part of a religious ritual. And Obergefell was also mentioned, which was the same sex um, marriage case. So, Dinamar, based on the conservative makeup of the court now, do you think either of these two precedents are at risk? I do not think Obergefell is at risk. I do not think John Roberts is, uh, is going to uh, try to undo uh, the, the national constitutional right to uh, same-sex uh, equality in, in, uh, in marriage. For one thing, um, there's too much mobility. Uh, it's, it would be too hard to try to police uh, uh, bans on same-sex marriage, given that people have been move, getting married and moving all across the country uh, for, for many years now. Uh, and we're doing that even before Obergefell. So I actually think Obergefell is not really in jeopardy, although I, I think that extensions of same-sex equality um, uh, you know, beyond the marital context are, are certainly up for grabs in, in, this, in this court. Um, Smith is a, is a different matter. One of the, I mean, and everyone adverted to this, he intimated uh, this, one of the questions on which the Supreme Court granted review in the Philadelphia case explicitly was whether they should reconsider the Smith ruling. Smith was not just about peyote and drug use. Um, I was a, I clerked for Justice Blackman the year Smith was decided. So I actually uh, um, helped uh, 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 prepare him a little bit for the case. And Smith, uh, which was written by uh, Antonin Scalia, by the way, uh, laid out a very bright line test that says the following, that if, if government goes after you because of hostility towards your religion, it discriminates against you because of your religion, then that violates free exercise. But if government passes generally applicable neutral laws that simply have the effect of making it harder for you to practice your religion, imagine a law, for example, that prohibits all underage consumption of alcohol that as a practical matter makes it impossible for a teenager to drink wine as part of communion. That's a law that's not going after Catholics or Christians. It's had nothing to do with religion. It's a law about underage alcohol that simply has this uh, entailment, this effect. In those cases, Justice Scalia wrote, there's no free exercise problem at all. The government doesn't need to prove a compelling reason for not exempting people from uh, from this kind of law the way it, it used to do before Smith was decided. Prior law said when a neutrally applicable law has the effect of burdening religion, the government has to have a compelling reason for not granting you an exemption or an exception from that generally applicable law. Um, Congress responded to Smith by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act almost unanimously, if not unanimously, I think, in, in, in Senate and, and, and lopsidedly in the House. So there was, there was a a, a kind of a confluence of a conservative and liberal support for free exercise um, uh, that, that has, uh, has resulted in a great deal of pushback against um, the Smith decision. And various of the justices have intimated uh, that they might be willing to reconsider Smith. So I think that's, that's a distinct possibility. I didn't actually uh, read the oral argument transcript yet, uh, as Erwin obviously has. Um, I do think, though, that, that Amy Coney Barrett and other acolytes of Justice Scalia and maybe Brett Kavanaugh uh, and Gorsuch, you know, Gorsuch find themselves in this camp as well. 
they're going to have to grapple with what the essential reasoning of Scalia's position was, namely, if you start requiring government to, to justify not granting exemptions, you get into a pretty subjective ad hoc assessment of what government interests are strong enough and what government interests are not, are not strong enough. And Scalia didn't want courts to be in that business, especially absent some congressional directive. They did, he didn't think the Constitution directly authorized courts to be drawing those very nuanced ad hoc lines. Um, I do think, going to Irwin's point, that racial discrimination is always going to be considered a, a big enough problem that there's going to be a, government, a compelling government interest that would justify not granting an exemption for religiously inspired racism. So if a religious organization wants to engage in race discrimination, I think the court, even a conservative court and a court that got rid of Smith, would say the government wins in those cases because eradicating racial discrimination is such a compelling governmental interest. But when you move away from racial discrimination to gender discrimination, or certainly sexual orientation discrimination, I think that, that, that uh, all bets are off, which is why if you really want to preserve laws that, dis that prohibit discrimination on gender or sexual orientation grounds, Smith is a good bulwark uh, to, 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 to think about keeping in this regard. And I don't know what the court's going to do. Irwin might have a better inclination of how many, how many noses he counted uh, for reconsidering Smith. I don't know what our time is like. Do I have time to respond to Vic? Sure. I mean, we'll just yeah. go with the flow because I think the conversation is so interesting. Mm -hmm. And you bo might yeah. both want to comment on whether you think the court is going to rule in favor of Philadelphia. But sure. go I ahead. I respond to both of Vic's points. In terms of the first, I'm less sanguine than he is about the future of Obergefell. On the first day of the term, Justices Thomas and Alito issued an opinion where they made clear that they would still overrule Obergefell. In 2017, Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent in Pavan versus Smith, where he indicated that Obergefell was wrongly decided. Amy Coney Barrett as a law professor was sharply critical of Obergefell. And the only dissent that John Roberts has ever read from the bench since coming on the court in October 2005 was an Obergefell. Now, I certainly agree with Vic that even if the court doesn't reconsider Obergefell, they're not going to extend it in any way. And in fact, I think they're going to allow religious discrimination against gays and lesbians. Mm. With regard to Fulton, I agree with everything Vic said in describing Employment Division versus Smith. The only thing I'd add is that political perspectives have changed. Employment Division versus Smith was Justice Scalia writing, and the liberals were very critical of it. Now it's flipped completely, and it's the conservatives who have criticized Employment Division versus Smith. There was an opinion just a couple of years ago where four conservatives suggested it should be reconsidered. And it's the liberals who are now saying, we need to have the Employment Division versus Smith standard. Um, I think that it's a court that is going to allow much more discrimination against gays and lesbians. I predict that Philadelphia is going to lose. And normatively, I think just as discrimination on the basis of race is wrong, so is discrimination based on sexual orientation wrong, and we shouldn't allow people to do either on the basis of religion. So I don't know who's going to win in the Philadelphia case per se, but I, I just want to make a, 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 a point that I think is transcendent because it, it, it applies to a lot of this. I think Justice you know, Alito, Justice Thomas, maybe Justice Gorsuch, um, they may be kind of you know, movement conservatives and, and, and kind of just not willing to, to compromise and take into account precedent at, at all. John Roberts is clearly not that kind of justice. A lot of the future of the court depends on whether Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett are more influenced by John Roberts than they are Clarence Thomas. Um, and I'm quite, uh, I'm more sanguine than Irwin that both Barrett and even Brett Kavanaugh, who I knew when we were both in law school together, uh, will uh, ultimately kind of uh, uh, see the virtue of John Roberts's instincts uh, more than, say, uh, Sam Alito's instincts. I hope you're right, having read a great deal of Amy Coney Barrett's writings, having looked at her Seventh Circuit record, I have no confidence. I see her very much in the same mold as Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. Kavanaugh, I don't know, though having read Ruth Marcus's book, Supreme Ambition, it makes me very worried that Kavanaugh is going to be much more like the conservatives that you mentioned as movement conservatives than Roberts. I agree that Roberts has more respect for precedent, but he's also was the justice who voted 
in Citizens United to overrule precedent, or in Janus to overrule precedent, or in my case, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt to overrule precedent. So I'm not as sanguine as you are about Obergefell, but on all of this, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. I certainly agree with that. Um, but let's turn now to the election law, which um, Dean Amar, you had mentioned as one of the things you really wanted the Congress, if it includes a Democratic Senate, uh, to focus on. And um, the issue, of course, has been at the forefront well before the election and now continuing well past the election. Uh, Donald Trump has been alleging without any evidence that the election was rigged, it was replete with fraud, he's falsely claimed that courts decide elections, um, and he's filed a number of lawsuits, all of which have been very quickly dismissed as what I would call frivolous, warranting imposition of penalties uh, so that the plaintiffs uh, have to pay for the cost of defense. Um, but they're all in pursuit of Trump bringing his challenge to this Supreme Court. He said that was one of the reasons he appointed uh, Justice Barrett. And as far as my following the cases it shows, except for the one case that allowed um, the observers to move from 10 feet away to six feet away from the poll counters, um, I don't think any of them have not been thrown out. They've all been rejected. And um, th the intervention that has been sought, uh, the argument yesterday, now it's maybe two days ago by um, Rudy Giuliani has been basically laughed at. Um, it is different this year than it was when Bush v. Gore happened, where 500 plus votes separated the winner and the loser of the national election, not just the Florida election, but Florida was the state that would decide who won. So um, you, Dean Amar, have co-written a, a New York Times op-ed that is relevant to my question here, which is, should we be concerned that the court may rule in Trump's favor, that, that is the Supreme Court, if it gets there? Um, and if so, on what grounds and what would the consequences be for the reputation of the court and of our democracy and electoral system? Well, I think Bush versus Gore was very uh, wrong when decided. And there's a reason why it hasn't been cited by anybody for, on the court for two decades, except once by Clarence Thomas until a few weeks ago. Uh, and then it was cited by a handful of the conservatives in various um, uh, uh, denials of state petitions um, made uh, in, in North Carolina and, and Pennsylvania. I don't think anything's going to get to the Supreme Court for the simple reason that this is very different than Florida. Um, uh, President Trump would have to mount a challenge in several states, not just one state. And as you mentioned, Jill, in these states, he's not trailing by 500 votes. He's trailing by 10,000 to 70,000 to 150,000 votes. Um, so it's a very, very implausible uh, uh, set of, of legal challenges. Um, uh, the, the one federal question that has been raised that various of the justices flirted with a few weeks ago that I'm very troubled by, not because it's gonna affect this election, but just because I think it's so, so wrong-headed more generally. And this is what we wrote about in the New York Times. And I have an article that I just posted on SSRN just yesterday, um, uh, if anyone wants to look. It's about debunking the so-called uh, independent state legislature uh, uh, notion or doctrine. Here's the, here's the basic argument they're making. And this actually has its seeds in Bush versus Gore, in um, uh, a, a concurrence written by then uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, joined by Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas uh, in 2000 uh, itself. The idea is that when Articles 1 and 2 of the Constitution refer to the legislatures of the states as having power to regulate the manner of, of federal elections, that, that somehow means that those legislatures of the states can do whatever they want, free from any constraints that the state constitutions impose on the state legislatures, maybe even free from federal congressional law, um, and, and, and freedom to maybe change the, um, uh, the uh, outcome of a state after the people of a state have spoken by designating a separate slate of electors um, uh, other than the one that the people selected. We saw a hint of this in the Michigan shenanigans um, uh, just yesterday. Um, it turns out as an originalist matter, the word 
legislature did not mean to bear this mean. State legislatures are creatures of state constitutions. They're empowered by state constitutions. They're limited by state constitutions. So if the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says that under the state constitution, votes that are cast on election day but received a few days later have to be counted because there's a state constitutional right to have your vote counted, there's no federal argument that that should be disrespected. Um, so too, Congress passed a law that said the electors to the Electoral College have to be chosen on this year, November 3rd. That's election day. Article two gives Congress the power to designate the time for choosing the electors. And Congress designated that as November 3rd. Now it may take a couple of weeks to figure out who was elected and selected on November 3rd, but you can't change who was selected on November 3rd by selecting someone else later. That violates federal law. The state legislature tried to do that. Now there is an 1880 statute that gives states and state legislatures a very narrow power to do things in the, in the setting of what are called a failed election. But a failed election is not a close election. A failed election is one where we simply cannot know who won the popular vote. And whatever you think in all these states about you know, uh, discrepancies of a few hundred votes here and there, there is no plausible basis on which to say we don't know who won the popular election. And therefore, there's no plausible basis on which a state legislature can do anything after the fact. But if you're interested, take a look at this SSRN po uh, article I posted yesterday. Um, I think Dean Chemerinsky has to go now. Um, we've had, we've really had a great discussion, um, but I don't know if Dean Chemerinsky want to respond first or um, you have to go now, but um, I'll turn it over to you. I apologize. I agree with everything that Vic just said. I agree with him that I don't foresee litigation deciding this election. I don't foresee the Supreme Court deciding cases that are going to determine the outcome. It's not like Bush versus Gore. That was one state and several hundred votes. Here it would have to take overturning several states. I also think that the issue that's been raised that he talks about is going to come up again in the future. I agree with his conclusion, but I worry, I think four justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, have already indicated they're sympathetic to that argument, and Barrett may be with them. And I worry that this election could then set some bad precedents for the future. And I think there's other ways in which that's true as well, of some of the decisions that came from the lower courts I really worry are going to haunt us in the future. But thank you for having me. And it's just a pleasure. And I would love to do nice it again. Yeah, Nick, it's so always much. great to be with you. Same here. Thank Bye. you so much. We hope you'll come back and join us again. I'd love to. Thank two you. Quick, two quick follow-ons into what Erwin yeah. just said. Yeah. First, um, Justice Kavanaugh did indicate he, he was attracted to this argument. And by the way, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, and Justice Barrett all worked on this argument when they were lawyers for Bush in, in 2000. Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts seems to have understood that this argument is a bad one now. Um, Kavanaugh flirted with it, but two days later, or a handful of days later, he abandoned it seemingly, because he did not join the others um, in the, in the uh, North Carolina case the way he, uh, he suggested that he embrace this argument in the Wisconsin case. Um, so it's not remotely clear where Justice Kavanaugh is on this. And uh, here's an area where I think Justice Barrett hopefully will be influenced by Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' instinct. So I, 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 I don't know what's gonna happen. I think it's a terrible argument on the merits. I don't know that the court will embrace it. I actually think that they won't. Um, but interestingly, I think it would be better to resolve this um, in the calm uh, when there's no uh, election outcome that's at stake. Now, that may make it hard to have a, a live, right, non-moot case to look at these issues, but you'd, you'd rather decide these issues when you don't know who it's going to help or hurt, because um, uh, you, know, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be making decisions that you know are going to put someone in the White House or someone else in the White House. Right. So if there's a way for the court to get at this um, uh, you know, outside the context of an actual heated election, um, that would be ideal. Uh, and I, I, again, that raises some standing rightness and mootness issues, but that would be my preference. So I want to make sure we have enough time for audience questions, but so let, let's make sure they put them into, uh, I guess, into the Q&A feature so that we can look at them and ask them. Uh, and while they're doing that, I wanna just ask um, a couple of questions which could take forever to answer, but maybe you could give just a quick answer to these. Um, and there are things that I think a lot of citizens are currently concerned about. And that is whether the president can pardon himself 
or whether he can use the 25th Amendment to have Vice President Pence pardon him. Um, so let's start with that one. And then I want to go on to the emoluments clauses of the Constitution and sure. get some opinions on that. So let me take that. Let me answer the two questions in the box really quickly. If Congress were to pass a law um, saying that people rotate off the Supreme Court and become senior Supreme Court justices after 18 years, wouldn't the Supreme Court itself decide the constitutional permissibility of that law? Yes, they would. Um, uh, it would be an awkward kind of a case. Maybe they would recuse themselves. Maybe they would defer to what a lower court did in that regard. But th th there's always a problem whenever um, uh, uh, justices have to rule on things that affect their own power. Um, uh, uh, Alan asked me to post uh, that link to the article. Krista, could you maybe uh, uh, get that and put it in the box for people? Um, I sent it to Sally yesterday and she posted it on SSRN. Um, and if not, we can, we can post it later somewhere where people can find it. Um, I think um, that you can't pardon yourself. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that you can't. But so too, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that a vice president can't preside over his own impeachment. Constitution says that when the president is on trial for impeachment, that the, that the chief justice presides in the Senate rather than who else would preside in the Senate, the vice president. And the reason for that is so obvious. You wouldn't want a vice president to preside over the impeachment trial of a president when um, he may be loyal or she may be loyal to that president, or she may want to become president and may want that president to be convicted and removed. There's just too much self-interest. Um, notice the Constitution doesn't say uh, who should be presiding over the Senate when the vice president is charged with impeachment and tried. And yet no one would say that the vice president gets to preside over her own impeachment. Um, uh, and the reason for that is the Constitution has a, a, a recurring theme that, that thou shalt not be a judge in one's own case or cause. And that's true for, for, for pardon as well. So I don't think he could pardon himself. I don't think that should be legally respected. Now, could he step down and have uh, uh, Vice President Pence, uh, now President Pence, uh, pardon him? Sure, he could do that. Um, it would look bad. It might burn um, uh, uh, Pence's future and the Republican Party, but he could do that. Uh, but, but one important point to note about pardons, a pardon by the president immunizes individuals for things that they have done that they may or may not have been charged with um, yet. Um, but only under federal law. So if you do something that violates, say, New York state criminal law, a presidential pardon does not give you any protection from a state prosecution. And right now, most of the jeopardy that President Trump faces is probably from things like the Cy Vance Jr. investigation in New York state uh, that's going forward. Um, so, um, uh, you know, a as powerful as a pardon is, it's, it's not a, a complete immunity from any um, uh, criminal uh, 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 kind of uh, reckoning. Thank you. I, I certainly had looked at the issue of pardon because um, we wanted to indict Richard Nixon before he was, while he was still sitting president and were rebuffed by the special prosecutor on that. But then when he was a private citizen, we wanted to. And as we discuss what and how and when, uh, he was pardoned by Ford, which made it impossible. So the other question that I know is bothering a lot of people has to do with the emoluments clause, which seems to be just festering and lingering and nothing's happening. Um, we have both a domestic and a foreign emoluments clause in the constitution, and they're both anti-corruption is what their intent was. Uh, and prohibit the president receiving any sort of advantage from his government employment, um, which could be, for example, the foreign money that's coming into his hotel on his government lease, um, and any profit or gain uh, at all. So the question is, is there any penalty other than impeachment, which Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 65 was the remedy uh, for this kind of violation of these prohibitions, is there a possibility, sorry for my dog, <laughs> uh, for disgorgement? Is there something else? And more importantly, going back to standing, who has standing to bring these cases and what's going to happen with the ones that are pending now? I think these are great questions. So let me start by, uh, by saying something um, that uh, I hope is implicit in, in all the answers to the other uh, questions. 
I'm somebody who speaks only when I really know what I'm talking about and when I've written about stuff and when I really, really know the ins and outs. And that's not true for all, all commentators, to be honest with you. So I'm going to profess at the outset that I don't know, I, I'm not a scholar of the emoluments clause. Uh, clauses. So I'm not going to say for sure what they mean uh, and what they don't. Let me limit myself to the following questions. Uh, you're right, and I've read some of the rulings that have come down so far, but I haven't done independent research and writing on this stuff. I haven't written articles the way I have for everything else that I've talked about. Um, and uh, you're right that a lot of them have been getting dismissed on these threshold uh, questions of standing and ripeness and, and the like. These are these are prudential limitations that the federal courts use to manage their dockets. Um, I think some of these questions may get uh, resolved a little differently after someone leaves the White House than while they're in the White House. And I say that because, and I'll go back to the, the answer I gave with regard to um, uh, the, uh, the power of state legislatures uh, to regulate federal elections. It's a lot easier for a court to decide some of these things um, outside the context of a sitting president or an acute presidential contest where we know what the consequences are going to be. Um, to be sure, President Trump will remain a highly salient, politicized figure after he leaves the White House. But he's not president of the United States anymore. And so whether it's a damage action um, that's brought by a competitor um, who feels that they are kind of disadvantaged by an advantage that a, a president used while in office, or some other uh, worthy plaintiff, or even if there's no monetary sanction, even if it's just a declaration by a court, you know, um, de declaratory relief is a very powerful thing that courts provide saying, look, this was illegal. Um, and we're telling the world that going forward so that people will, will fall in line um, uh, in the future. Uh, that would be very powerful. That's a much easier thing to do after someone's left the White House. You know, when, when, when Bill Clinton was sued by Monica Lewinsky, um, and uh, um, uh, the Supreme Court in Clinton versus Jones um, rejected Bill Clinton's argument that he shouldn't have to deal with these litigations while he was trying to run the free world. I thought he had a very strong argument. I thought the court was ridiculous in cavalierly rejecting that argument. Um, so I think a lot of these things take on a different light after someone's left uh, the Oval Office. And so I'm hoping that we, we actually find out what higher courts, including possibly the Supreme Court, think uh, about the Emoluments Clause um, after uh, after after a piece. Okay, so are there other questions um, from the audience? I, yeah, mean, I guess before we get into questions, um, one one last question. We focus a lot about the um, current term, what cases have been argued. Um, as we give folks a chance to ask us questions, are there any cases that you think that uh, my generation, Jill's generation, all generations in between should look forward to uh, for the rest of the Supreme Court term? So there's one other one that I'll put on the table. Um, and this has to do with whether um, uh, the federal government can uh, uh, exclude from the census um, uh, gathering uh, information uh, and counting about uh, undocumented individuals. Um, so uh, some states obviously uh, want to count undocumented individuals um, because that their overall number will determine kind of uh, what kind of federal money comes their way under various federal programs. Uh, they want to count everybody in their state who is going to be a recipient of those federal services and the like. And the Trump administration has taken the position that undocumented persons should not count. Um, I think that's a very important issue for people of all generations, but especially for young people, because there's no, um, I think, uh, uh, face of the, uh, of the immigration dilemma that the country is uh, grappling with that's better than the dreamers. I mean, the dreamers, they kind of epitomize the unfairness that immigration law visits upon some individuals who, by no fault of their own, are not uh, kind of lawfully um, uh, documented individuals. So that's a case that I think folks might want to pay attention to, see, uh, see how that comes out um, uh, in the coming months. Um, there were a couple other questions that, yeah. uh, that I, uh, I'll mention, or one, one that's in the, in the box now, uh, and people can add others. Um, it, it's, what did I mean when I referred to the shenanigans in Michigan? Well, just yesterday, um, the Wayne County Board of Election canvassers uh, temporarily refused to certify the election results from Wayne County, which includes Detroit, the largest city in the state and home to uh, a very large number of African-American voters, 
uh, on the ground that there were some discrepancies in many of the precincts within the county um, uh, in, in the sense that there might have been one or two or three or four or five uh, um, uh, individuals. Uh, the, the, the numbers of votes and the numbers of individuals didn't match up properly by a very small numbers. And they, they initially declined to certify um, this. They, they, based on kind of an outrage uh, that, that was uh, uh, expressed via Zoom and elsewhere, they changed their minds um, and they voted, the, the Republicans on the board voted to go ahead and certify this um, to the state level. But, but the Republicans in Michigan who wanted to block certification have been very open about what they're trying to do here. Namely, they're trying to prevent the state from uh, resolving the election um, uh, uh, in, in a timely fashion so then the state legislature might be able to step in and designate its own uh, slate of pro-Trump electors because the legislature is controlled by Republicans. And this has been their game, their strategy in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, and it would have been in Florida had they lost Florida the way that some of them feared. Now, to their credit, the state legislators in Pennsylvania and in Michigan have publicly said, that's not our job. The people get to decide whoever had the most votes is, is, is the, uh, the candidate who, who gets the electors in our state. Um, and I think that's been frustrating to some of the, the, uh, the uh, President Trump's um, uh, folks. Um, but, but I'm glad that the, the board in, uh, in, in uh, Wayne County didn't even uh, open the door to, the, to more of those shenanigans. And I'm hoping that things kind of fall in line. Now, maybe one reason why the legislators in Pennsylvania and Michigan have been saying these principal things is because of what uh, Irwin and Jill and I said earlier, namely, look, none of it's gonna matter because there's so many states. Um, you know, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, if you can't, if, if those three stay locked, then, nothing, then Michigan and Pennsylvania don't even matter. Um, uh, so it's easy to be principled when, uh, when you're not tempted by uh, uh, an outcome that, that could be uh, changed. But, but I'll, take, I'll take principled statements whenever I can get them. And, and it's also that the numbers are so big. As you right. mentioned, the numbers are more in the tens of thousands than in the hundreds. And so even if you could change a few votes uh, and challenge them, it's not going to change the outcome of the race, either in a state and certainly not nationally. Um, if, if there's no more questions, I could ask about um, either the uh, national popular vote compact that's being talked about as a way to avoid some of these elector questions, the electoral college, and whether the states could take over and appoint uh, electors who support a candidate, not the winner of even their state, let alone the national popular vote. Have you um, looked at that possibility to avoid a constitutional amendment to get rid of the electoral college? Well, not only have I looked at that, um, I and my older brother at Yale um, uh, were two of the three intellectual architects of this idea in 2000. We wrote articles. It really traces back to uh, articles that my brother and I wrote and articles that the former dean of uh, Northwestern independently wrote around the same time. It was actually my brother and I that kind of, uh, uh, kind of floated this idea of a specific compact that would uh, operate among the states. And the basic idea, as you mentioned, Jill, is that um, uh, states right now can, under the Constitution, Article 2, give their electors to anyone they want. And every state um, gives its electors to the person who won the most votes in that state. It's kind of natural to think in those terms. Uh, there's a couple of exceptions in Maine and Nebraska that we saw. They do it a little bit more complicatedly, but let's put them to one side. Every state has an incentive to give all of its electors to the person who won the most votes in that state because that maximizes the incentive for the candidates to come to that state and, and give promises that benefit the people of that state. So, um, you know, take a state that has 21 electors. If it says to the candidates, we'll give the person who wins over the median voter in our state and, and gets more votes than anyone else in our state, we'll give you all 21 electors rather than we'll give you 11 of the 21. That's a much bigger incentive, right? So that's what states do. But states could, if they want, give their electors not to the person who won the most votes in the state, but to the person who won the most votes nationwide. And if as few as 11 states all agreed to do that, that would amount, that would account for 270 electors and in effect bring about a national popular vote 
without need for a constitutional amendment, because that's always been the hangup. You need 37, 38 states to, uh, to, to um, uh, uh, adopt an amendment, and that's really hard to do. But you don't need 38 states to do this. You need as few as 11, and maybe um, that, that's a fair, the 11 largest. Um, uh, in reality, you may need between 20 and 25, but this plan where states make this commitment on the condition that enough other states also join so that the commitment would not be in vain, that's been adopted by 16 or 17 jurisdictions, including Illinois, um, uh, including California. Um, and there are about 190, 195 uh, uh, electors towards the 270 that they need for this to come into being. Now, um, I've written a lot about this over the past 20 years, in addition to uh, uh, the original writings. Uh, people are interested, there's an article in the 2011 Georgetown Law Journal. And if you just Google my name and National Popular Vote and Justia, that's the website that I write every two weeks for, you'll find dozens of articles. In recent years, I've come to think there are a couple of problems with this plan uh, because the people who took our, our ideas and ran with them didn't quite take all of our ideas. One of the things that we said, my brother and I, was that if you're gonna have a national popular uh, comparison of votes, then you need more uniformity in the way states run elections. Right now we have 51 separate elections and that's fine because we're not comparing votes across states. But once you start comparing votes across states, then it's more problematic that some states let felons vote and other states don't. Or some states might want to let 17-year-olds vote and other people don't. Or Illinois wants to let dead people vote and other states don't. Um, uh, these things become a lot more problematic and there's a lot more incentives for gamesmanship, uh, gamespersonship, uh, if, if you really are doing this. So, so I think Congress would need to step in and pass a law uh, or at least a third party clearinghouse would need to set up a system where everyone can register their preferences for president in a uniform way that could be then used um, uh, for purposes of this national popular vote compact commitment. The second thing I would say is when I first wrote about this in 2000 and 2004, it wasn't remotely clear which party would be benefited by a national popular vote. Uh, you know, in 2000, more people, or a lot of people at least, thought that George Bush would win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College. In 2004, George Bush beat uh, John Kerry by about 3 million votes nationally. He could have easily lost the Electoral College if Ohio had been the other way. So, so right now we're in a situation where Republicans think that they're going to lose in the national popular vote game. I'm not sure they're correct about that. I think they're probably going to lose in the Electoral College game, too, if the country keeps going blue the way uh, Texas might. But here's my thought. If enough states join on to this, let's agree now to do it, but let's defer implementation for uh, 16 or 20 years, because by then we'll have no idea who it'll help and who it'll hurt. Um, and this, this idea is really interesting. Um, one of my former mentors, um, Dean Bennett at uh, Northwestern, we've talked about this issue quite a bit, and he mentions the uniformity, how that um, is, is, a, is a key part of uh, this compact that you are talking about. But it's an issue that I think Jill and I, we can get into so much deeper, but um, it looks like we are six past two. Um, so we want to make sure that, um, you know, Perhaps the final question is, um, for a lot of students on this call, um, law students, high school students, college students, um, what advice would you give us, I guess, as we approach, I guess, a time where public services needed more now more than ever before? Um, you know, any law students who are thinking about going to the legal profession, like what would you say to them during this time in our uh, nation's history? It's a very good question. I think it's, it, it, it's important not just for budding lawyers and law students to really think about what they can do, but what, what we all can do as citizens. And I will, I will, I will give a two-part answer to this. First, we need to get out of our bubbles, out of our silos. We need to engage people who uh, have a different worldview than us. We need to talk to them. We need to hear where they're coming from. We need to uh, kind of be uh, considerate and, and courteous and respectful of what they say, even as we try to get them to understand that maybe they don't see everything that they think they do or they're, they're missing some things. So that's point number one. That's our big problem as a country is we're just too fragmented in, in where we live, where we work, uh, where we worship, where we socialize, et cetera. Second and related, you know, the big threat to democracy is not um, presidential attacks on the media or uh, 
or threats to jail one's political enemies, or even presidential threats not to leave office. As terrible as that is, that's not the big threat to democracy. The big threat to democracy is the erosion of the very idea that there is a difference between factual argumentation and public policy point of view. If you can't get people to understand that some things are simply non-factual and they're just phony and made up, if everything is fake, you can't have democracy. There has to be a shared understanding that some things are fake and some things aren't. So QAnon is fake. Birtherism is fake. If you can't get people to understand these things, um, uh, then all is lost. And, and, and President Obama made this point, I think, in an Atlantic piece I saw recently. So being able to engage people and get them to understand that evidence-based arguments, empirical arguments, don't have to be too politicized and get them to understand that you, you have to really talk about what there's support for. You know, at the end of the day, and this goes back to Jill's point, when courts are kicking all these lawsuits by Trump out of court, it's not the Supreme Court, it's not the lower courts, or the uh, appellate courts, it's the trial courts. Why? Because trial courts are a place where you can't just say whatever the heck you want. You have to produce admissible evidence. It's a very fact and evidence-based uh, institution. So these courts are saving democracy, not just by upholding a fair election. They're saving democracy by modeling the, the importance of fact-finding and the, uh, the, uh, the, the um, uh, tenability of fact-finding. Um, and that's what we need to, uh, to, to draw from the experience that we're, we're observing. And this is Republican judges and Democratic judges, it's state judges and federal judges. Courts and lawyers are one area where you can't just blow smoke without evidence. And, 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 I, and, and I'm proud to be a law professor and a dean because I'm training people in that evidence-based um, way of looking at the world. That is the best uh, thing that you could have said. I think the critical thinking skills that you get in law school apply to all of us. And it's something that we need to have way before law school in order for people to even nowadays in the era of social media to be able to ascertain what is fact. And there is only one set of facts. There's no such thing as alternative facts. So my dog is going crazy and we're out of time. But this has been so exciting. I hope you'll invite us back to do this again. You're always welcome. In that final regard, for those of you who haven't seen this uh, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, I highly oh, it's recommend amazing. it. Yeah. it, it it's, it's a little stylized. It's a little hokey. Um, but I learned a lot from it. And, and this, this question about um, you know, alternative facts um, is important. But an artificial intelligence and, and the, the, the profit um, model, the, the monetization of social media, are really creating big problems for us in this regard. And we gotta, right. this, this could be an existential threat that we have to get our handle on. For sure. Well, we've really enjoyed this and we wanna thank you and the University of Illinois for hosting us today. And um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.